This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Alain Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Well, welcome to our podcast on the uh, treatment of uh, overweight and obesity. And uh, with us today, we have um, a very distinguished you know, professor of medicine, Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Dr. Timothy Garvey, uh, who's, all, who's been an endocrinologist all his life, starting at UCSD and arrived at UAB uh, in 2004. He's now the director of diabetes um, Melitus Research Center, and is funded uh, with, by the NIH. So, Tim, thank you very much uh, for volunteering your time and uh, try to help us define a little bit more about overweight and obesity for our patients. Well, thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure for me to join you in this uh, podcast, and I, I look forward to the discussion with you. I'm so excited because I think um, overweight and obesity is the other pandemic going on. We know that um, about 70% of the U.S. population is either overweight or obese. And we predict by 2030, one of every two uh, adult American uh, will be obese and one in every four will be severely obese. So, I mean, this is, I think, a very, very imperative uh, and very important topic. And if we could start, Tim, by discussing what is the definition of obesity? Yeah, well, obesity is a really a disease of, of disordered energy balance that is features a, a drive towards increased caloric intake. And that's just kind of hardwired in as a pathophysiological mechanism operative in this disease. So people kind of gain an excess of body weight and sustain a high level of body weight. Then that creates a host of obesity-related complications that are really responsible for impairing the health of patients uh, and decreasing their quality of life. And so these patients whether they're the one-third of patients in the United States who have obesity, as you've mentioned, with a BMI of 30 or greater, or another third uh, who have overweight, which is a BMI between 25 and 30, regardless, they're at risk of these complications that include type 2 diabetes, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease, stroke, hypertension, uh, and eventually this conspire to create chronic kidney disease. So um, that's why we need to take this disease seriously uh, and be more effective in treating uh, the disease on behalf of our patients. So it seems like we define obesity uh, by uh, the BMI, which we, we measure in the office. And I think you mentioned overweight between 25 and 30, uh, obesity greater than 30, and um, severe obesity, I guess, greater than, than 40. Is that right? Um, That's right. What, what, what about beyond the BMI? And you mentioned, obviously, the impact on the health and weight-related complications. What are those complications that we need to be aware of and watch for? Yeah, that's, that's why I think this is, is so important. You've mentioned the BMI and the weight. These are kind of physical measurements, okay, of, of body mass. They don't really tell you anything about how this increase in body mass is affecting the health of the patient. They're just kind of pure physical measurements. That's why I think it's important for healthcare professionals not only to measure the BMI and body weight, but also to screen patients for the complications of obesity. 
This is what we do with other chronic diseases. You know, for diabetes, we don't just measure the hemoglobin A1C or blood glucose. Uh, we measure, we check whether they've had kidney disease, heart disease, eye disease, and we have to do the same with obesity. So I view the diagnosis as including both these physical measures and the clinical measures, which is the presence and severity of these uh, complications. And I've alluded to these complications also, Alan, um, and I put them into two categories, well, three categories, really. One I call biomechanical, okay? And that just means, you know, what, what's caused by patients carrying around an increased body mass over a number of years. And, and those include obstructive sleep apnea, which is very common underdiagnosed. That includes osteoarthritis, urinary incontinence, uh, GERD, gastroesophageal reflux, and a number of, of complications along those lines. The other big category I call cardiometabolic. So what does that term mean, cardiometabolic? That implies correctly that this is due to a single underlying disease mechanism that has insulin resistance at its core. And when you superimpose obesity on top of this, you, you worsen the insulin resistance and drive this disease forward. So as the name implies cardiometabolic, it gives rise to both metabolic complications like diabetes and fatty liver disease and vascular complications like heart disease and stroke and peripheral artery disease uh, and hypertension. So, um, you know, and then the third category I would say is really how the patient experiences uh, the disease and the presence of these symptoms in terms of quality of life uh, we now have this term patient-oriented uh, outcomes or patient-reported outcomes. And, you know, it's important for healthcare professionals to talk to their patients and ask them about, you know, how this disease is really affecting them and in and, and terms of what they think is important in terms of quality of life. So as a physician and when you're in the office and try to find, you know, whether an overweight or obese patient is metabolically healthy or not. I mean, I guess we need to measure the, the do we measure the abdominal circumference? Uh, do we measure, obviously, the blood pressure, the cholesterol level, measure an A1C? Uh, do, we, do we do a, a liver ultrasound uh, or some measurement of visceral fat to find out whether they're metabolically healthy or not? Yes, yeah, very good question. I think... Um... You know, you mentioned the waist circumference, and I, I think that's that's another physical measurement, but it is a measurement that reflects this cardiometabolic disease process that I was talking about. You know, when you uh, have a redistribution of fat into the abdominal compartment, your central visceral compartment, which you really get, which the waist circumference reflects, that is driven by insulin resistance, and that is a good hallmark of cardiometabolic disease process. So you automatically know if the waist is above a certain threshold level, different levels for men and women and, and, and other kind of uh, uh, ethnicities, uh, you know those patients are at increased risk of you know the metabolic diabetes and the vascular heart disease uh, complication. So I think that's an important physical measurement. Uh, but uh, you know, there's the examination, of course, that's important. And and then um, and then you mentioned that the, the cardiovascular risk factors, um, cardiometabolic risk factors, really about blood pressure, lipids. A lipid panel is important. Uh, fasting glucose, if not a hemoglobin A1C. If patient has signs or symptoms of, of hypothyroidism, I'll get a TSH level. Also, and also, um, 
you know, you're going to be putting the patient on a, a lifestyle intervention. Uh, so it's important to kind of uh, talk to them about their, what kind of uh, diets they prefer in terms of macronutrient composition, personal preferences, cultural preferences, because you're going to want to develop a diet along those lines and deliver it in a reduced calorie format. And also what kinds of physical activity they prefer and enjoy, because you're going to need to give them kind of a physical activity prescription uh, as well. Uh, and then the review of systems, of course, is important. You know, symptomatology for um, arthritis, for GERD, for obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, you know, this is, and you put all of this database together and sizing up the patient and using this information to make clinical decisions. And then we talk about ABCD disease. I mean, what, what is that? Yes. You know, this is a, a, a diagnostic term that... Um, myself and some colleagues of mine proposed as a medical diagnostic term, not necessarily for lay general use, but, um, you know, the term obesity means so many diff different things to different people. Uh, again, it, it kind of talks to BMI, which as I alluded to, doesn't give you any information about how an increase in BMI is affecting health and is full of uh, stigma, stigmatization and um, shaming uh, in social media, in, in the general public, and even when patients contact healthcare systems, if the healthcare system doesn't approach these patients empathetically, it just increases the shaming. We thought we'd create a diagnostic term <clears throat> that really told you what we're treating. It's adiposity-based, okay? It's, it's due to a, an increase in the mass of adipose tissue, fat tissue, or the function and distribution of, of that adipose tissue. So that's what we're treating. And then why we're treating it. It's a chronic disease, like other chronic diseases that give rise to complications. And it's incumbent upon healthcare professionals to kind of um, treat the disease with an eye towards treating or preventing these complications. So adiposity base, chronic disease, what we're treating, why we're treating it. Very good. You know, on the second point, I'd like to see, I mean, since you're an endocrinologist, Tim, if you could help us kind of um, establish a little bit more, what is the relationship between obesity and diabetes? I mean, obviously we have like, you talked a little bit about the insulin resistance. I mean, we have, I have some friends, for example, that um, that are, you know, they know they're obese, you know, they're fat, uh, but they're fit. I mean, they exercise. Um, they, uh, you know, they bike, I mean, they, they, uh, they swim, uh, they, they eat pretty good. I mean, some of them are vegan, but of course, you know, they eat probably too much, uh, too many cakes and cookies because after all, Oreos are vegan, right? Um, it was kind of, I, I saw an interesting study. I was looking at the, uh, in the British literature, for example, there were some, uh, they followed for about 20 years these patients that had that were obese, but they were healthy. And um, they, they basically didn't have any metabolic or too much, you know, biomechanical problems. And, and it seems like uh, these healthy obese, after five years, about 30% became unhealthy uh, obese. And by 20 years, about half of them, 50% were, you know, unhealthy. They already had developed, you know, some diabetes. They had unhealthy obesity. So, how do you actually, um, you know, kind of uh, reconcile, you know, this fat fitness 
and how it relates to insulin resistance and diabetes. Yes. Well, I, I appreciate this. Uh, we, we sometimes call this healthy obesity. That's usually in regards to uh, the cardiometabolic disease complications. These patients are insulin sensitive and not at increased risk of diabetes or heart disease over the general population, or maybe a slight increase in diabetes risk. But um, lean people that are insulin resistant have more risk of diabetes than patients with obesity who are insulin sensitive. Regardless, uh, you know, so these patients may also be at risk of the biomechanical complications like sleep apnea and osteoarthritis. But uh, really what we're looking at are patients with the disease of obesity who have no complications, feel well, they're active. Um, it doesn't mean they don't have the disease of obesity. It means we're kind of in a secondary prevention treatment mode, which means uh, it's incumbent upon us to prevent further weight gain and to continue to surveil these patients for the emergence of complications and then to treat disease accordingly if they should appear, uh, perhaps in a more aggressive mode. So, um, you know, I, I, I think I, I applaud these patients for being active and watching what they eat. Um, you know, we're dealing with a disease that's caused by genetic factors as they interact with the environment and they're doing the best they can given their uh, the cards they were handed out uh, in the genetic uh, 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 shuffle. So, um, you know, I, I think I applaud them and they should continue doing that, but they should continue to kind of see their healthcare professional uh, and just understand that they are at risk of certain complications as the years roll by. Is there a way to um, to predict which one will develop, you know, metabolic complication? Is there a kind of a way to, to uh, strategize their risk? Yeah, well, the best way to do this, I mean, we, we don't measure this insulin resistance. It's not something we measure clinically. The best way to detect the presence of cardiometabolic disease is the simple things that we do every day. If their blood pressure is elevated, if their triglycerides are elevated and their HDL cholesterol is low, if their fasting glucose is elevated, perhaps in the pre-diabetes range, if their waist circumference is elevated above a threshold, these all are indicative of the presence of cardiometabolic disease. You know they're insulin resistant. You know they're increased risk of both developing diabetes and uh, heart disease. Um, we, we developed a, a, and tested a simple paradigm for prime point of care a practice, primary care practice, if you will, that helps uh, healthcare professionals decide which, how, to, what to, to what degree these patients are at risk of developing diabetes and heart disease too, for that matter, based on quantitative data that's readily available to the physician. And we, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. We have a simple version and a more complicated version, but the simple version is if they have none of these traits that I just mentioned, they're at low risk. If they have one or two of these metabolic syndrome traits, they're at higher risk. If they meet criteria for metabolic syndrome or prediabetes, they're at even higher risk. And if they meet criteria for both prediabetes and metabolic syndrome, their risk of diabetes is 40-fold increased over those without any of these traits. So just and these are this is information we have in our charts. And uh, just using this data, you can differentiate risk of future diabetes over 40-fold and you know, bring more aggressive therapies to those in the high-risk categories. And when you do that, you increase the benefit risk of the intervention. And I guess um, 
health system CEOs will appreciate. It also leads to greater cost effectiveness of the intervention. So um, I, I think there are there are ways to kind of uh, identify cardiometabolic risk and to place patients into different rest strata using data that's already available to us. I think uh, it, be, it will become important when we talk about treatment because these new treatment, the second generation uh, treatment for obesity, they're quite expensive. And I and I know when I, and we'll talk about that, but it's, I can see why the insurers, for example, would need to have some evidence of the data that we're doing something, um, you know, uh, with outcomes so that it's worth, you know, the price, um, you know, because obviously you can't give uh, these medications to 75 percent of the population, um, you know, would break the system. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the treatment of obesity. I mean, this is what we're about you know, today. And if we could start with um, healthy lifestyle um, and talk a little bit about how much can we accomplish with healthy lifestyle? Um, and uh, is it enough, you know, to prevent, you know, complications uh, with metabolic, you know, complication? And, uh, and why is it so difficult to sustain? Well, there's a lot there, Alan. Let me um, just answer the overview first and then unpack that a little bit. Um, yes, lifestyle prescription is the cornerstone of therapy. And no, in many, many patients, it's not enough. Okay. So lifestyle intervention. Um, uh, you know, we diet is, uh, there's, there's so many studies uh, saying one diet is good. This diet's better. When you look at weight loss on any given diet, they can all be about the same. Uh, and we don't really have long-term data on many of these diets in more than two years. Uh, with one exception, that's the Mediterranean diet, where we do have longer-term uh, metabolic and, and, and cardiac outcome data. Um, uh, so that's a beneficial diet and can, can be cardioprotective and prevent uh, diabetes. Um, uh, but for weight loss, all of these diets are, are, are okay and safe over a you know initial period. And to me, it's important to prescribe a diet that the patient's going to like, you know, based on cultural and personal preferences. And then, as I mentioned earlier, deliver that in a reduced calorie type of, of setting. And and uh, working with a dietitian is is really uh, helpful uh, in this regard. And then a, a physical activity. Um, just to kind of keep up your, your cardiovascular, cardiometabolic health, it's uh, also helps with a little with weight loss. It's more important after you've had some weight loss to sustain that weight loss. But again, it, you don't have, patients aren't going to be running, uh, well, some patients may run marathons, but most of my patients, you know, I just put them on a walking program. And that's, data shows that anything is better than nothing. So even if it's just, you know, walking, a few blocks, building up at night, walking your dog in the evening, uh, increasing the, the duration of walking over time, uh, that that's fine. Um, now, we know that we can get, you know, up to 10% weight loss on patients over and sustain it over a year uh, pretty reliably with diet alone and physical activity alone. But then we start to see the weight uh, creeping up. And why is it creeping up? Is it the patient's fault? And now we understand that this has a, a pathophysiological a molecular basis that patients have to fight against because this is what the disease has, brings to the table. And that is these hormones that are released in the body, satiety hormones, 
that signal to feeding centers in the brain and tell you, well, it's time to eat, it's time to eat more, or uh, it's time to stop eating or you're not hungry, alternatively. These hormonal systems, as they interact with these feeding centers in the disease of obesity are abnormal. They're set to generate and sustain a higher body mass. And with the lifestyle intervention, those mechanisms are still working even over time. Uh, and they tend to drive that weight regain, regain back up to that high initial level. So that's what the patient is fighting in. They're fighting against pathology. Okay. It's not their fault. You know, <laughs> our, our weight is not a cognitive process, Alan. We don't decide, you know, I think I'm going to eat until my BMI is 35 and I'll just stop right there. Okay. That's just not how it works. It's these, uh, these abnormalities that involve satiety hormones and, and the regulation of feeding centers that, that is responsible. So that's why we need to think about medications, okay, that counteract these, uh, these mechanisms that, that work on these feeding centers in the brain um, and alter the way these satiety hormones uh, uh, affect caloric intake. I think one of the most notorious hormones is that ghrelin, just having these little gremlins in your stomach makes you very, <laughs> very hungry all the time. I, I never thought of the, the term gremlin as applies to ghrelin, <laughs> but I, I think you're right. That's a hormone that's produced by the stomach. It goes up after you've eat, eaten and continues to go up and drives your eating for the next meal. So it's a hormone that makes you eat more. Yeah, terrible hormone. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about medication, but I want to finish with the medication. Let's talk next about the gold standard, you know, which is the bariatric surgery. I mean, we know that bariatric surgery, you can achieve between 25 and 35% of body loss. And, and it is so effective. That is basically has redefined the field of obesity treatment. And you're able to basically decrease cardiovascular mortality, decrease myocardial infarction, improve on treatment of sleep apnea, diabetes resolution, and, and so forth, and hyperlipidemia resolution. Uh, if we could mention, I mean, who, would, who is the best candidate for bariatric surgery? And then maybe you could explain to us a little bit about the different types of uh, bariatric surgery uh, that they are, they're on the market. Yeah, definitely a role for bariatric surgery in the treatment of this disease. Um, if you just look at the indications, it's any person with a BMI of 40 or above is a candidate for bariatric surgery. If your BMI is 35 to 40, you need to have some, you know, some serious complications. Um, uncontrolled diabetes, for example, sleep apnea, you mentioned things of that nature uh, that kind of uh, to justify the, uh, the indication. And now uh, many societies are in their guidelines, including ones that I've participated in, uh, recommend uh, bariatric surgery for patients between the BMI of 30 and 35 if they're on multiple diabetes medicines and they can't control uh, their glycemia um, because of, of, of clinical trial data. Now, um, I think you asked what the best candidate is, and I, I do think it's patients with higher levels of BMI that have uh, serious complications or and or uh, uncontrolled diabetes on insulin and other medicines. Um, uh, these patients can benefit tremendously. They do routinely, depending on the on the procedure, get 25-35% weight loss. Um, this this changes the relationship that patients have with food. They're they're not as hungry. This is one thing that kind of 
puts a check on those satiety hormones in a way, in the way they act to increase caloric intake. Patients just don't have the appetite that they did before the surgery, and we don't completely understand that. However, you know, many patients do restart regaining weight. Um, you know, after five, uh, 10 years, we see increased uh, weight regain. Uh, and then the, whatever complications were there before tend to kind of resurface as well. Um, you know, so I think it, this doesn't mean that you have the surgery and you're done. Uh, this requires ongoing medical evaluation and follow-up um, over time. Um, now, um, the types of surgery, I think uh, we used to do more lap band, it's called, where by laparoscopy, laparoscopy, we the surgeons would put a band around the upper, very upper part of the stomach, and it was kind of constrictive, so patients just couldn't eat as much. Um, that's uh, not done so much anymore. Uh, those bands tend to slip and require readjustment and this sort of thing, and the weight loss was relatively modest, maybe 15 to 25 percent in many patients. A degrees of weight loss we're achieving with medications at this point. Um, the most common, uh, then uh, the Ruan-Y gastric bypass kind of took over. And this changes the plumbing a little bit more. Um, uh, you know, the stomach is kind of reduced in size to kind of a narrow uh, narrow pipe, if you will. And then the, uh, the duodenum is kind of um, connected lower down in the intestines. And um, and so you're, you've got some plumbing issues there. Um, and But the patients lost more weight, up to 35% of weight, very effective in putting diabetes into remission even. Uh, that's normal blood sugars without the need for medications. Uh, but it's a little bit more invasive, as I've alluded to, and a little bit more perioperative complications. And now uh, the gastric sleeve has emerged as the predominant procedure that's done and this is really kind of part of the Ruan Y, really. It's, it's turning the stomach and just narrowing it into a very kind of narrow uh, um, a lumen um, that kind of does restrict and, and limit food intake. But it also affects this appetite uh, uh, issue that I, I referred to. And do patients do lose weight, you know, uh, 25, 30%. So um, those are the procedures that are done for the most part these days. You know, in the, some of the patients in the by in the bypass surgery, gastric bypass surgery that they had, had a lot. I guess it's when you you have a duodenal exclusion. Uh, you know, they they had problem with malabsorption. I guess we don't see uh, that operation done so much anymore, do we? Bacteriobiliatic uh, diversion. Yeah. yeah, that's an operation that is done rarely, but it's done. Uh, patients lose more weight, and it is a malabsorptive uh, procedure. It. It doesn't. It works not only by uh, I don't know, altering these satiety hormones, but just by kind of getting nutrients that you eat out the other end without the chance of them being absorbed. And so it's a it's a malabsorptive uh, uh, procedure, uh, and therefore you you are at higher risk of nutritional deficiencies and and anemia, uh, B twelve deficiency, and others. It's done more commonly, I think, in South America, but it is done in the United States every once in a while. Well, let's talk now about the. Um the medical therapy. And, and for four years, Tim, I mean, uh, for 30 years, you know, I've been discouraging my patients uh, to take uh, these medications, you know, to lose weight because of all the experience we had with the FenFen, and, you know, the, it affected their valves, it gave them pulmonary hypertension, made some people very sick, even some even dying. Uh, but, you know, when I, um, when I uh, signed up for that meeting, 
in 2021, there was that uh, a lecture that you gave at the American College of Cardiology. And there was the meeting with Valentin Fuster, you know, excellent meeting in New York. Uh, it, it made me realize that the medical therapy, the medical treatment of obesity had gone through an incredible paradigm shift. And uh, ever since, uh, you know, the FDA approval of the semaglutide in uh, June 2021 for the treatment of diabetes, medications that we know very well for treatment of uh, diabetes that we know also uh, affect uh, very positively their, their cardiac event. Uh, they, these patients have less, uh, you know, uh, cardiac morbidity, morbidity and mortality. So uh, if you could maybe tell us a little bit about where we've been in the treatment, medical treatment of obesity, what was the first generation, you know, medications that we're talking about, some of them that are still given. Uh, and then let's finish by talking about the second generation of uh, medical treatment for obesity. Yeah, I think, um, Ellen, we, we didn't get off to a great start when it came to obesity medications. And you alluded to fenfluramine, which was uh, combined with fentramine uh, and this dex-fen-fen uh, combination. And it was the fenfluramine that uh, really was responsible for the valvular defects and primary pulmonary hypertension, not the fentramine. And of course, that's off the market. There was another medication, cybutramine, that kind of increased blood pressure, but lost weight. And uh, a, a study was done uh, in patients with a lot of uh, cardiovascular disease burden, and uh, it led to increased cardiovascular disease events, as you might predict. So that was taken off the market. Um, but we have had success. I mean, beginning uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, we've had fentramine and a number of other sympathomimetic amines, medicines that kind of increase norepinephrine in the central nervous system and suppress appetite. Back then, they thought, well, we'll just give them this medicine for a little while and they'll lose weight and then we're done. Obesity is taken care of. But, you know, they, we didn't understand how this disease uh, worked from a pathophysiological perspective. And so only short-term studies have been done with those medicines, um, uh, which is why we don't have long-term cardiovascular outcome data. And they're only recommended by the FDA for short-term treatment, usually three months or less. But beginning in 2012, we've had... Uh, a number of medications that were approved by the FDA, extensive phase three, uh, phase three clinical trials showing their safety and, and efficacy. Um, one is the combination of fentramine and topiramate. Uh, fentramine, the sympathomimetic amine, topiramate kind of uh, um, uh, as many actions, it's kind of gabaminergic, but um, in combination with fentramine, both at lower doses, uh, we get synergism for weight loss. Uh, and this is probably, this was a very effective medicine, could get, uh, you know, 7 to 10% weight loss uh, on average pretty pretty predictably. Um, we also had uh, another uh, medicine, um, another combination medicine, naltrexone, a mu opioid antagonist, and bupropion, uh, a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor that we use for depression and smoking cessation. And together, these, again, we get synergism for weight loss. Again, maybe about 6% weight loss on average, some more, some less. Uh, we also had liraglutide, a uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist, uh, initially for diabetes at a dose of 1.8 milligrams a day. Uh, but when we increase that to one, uh, 3 milligrams a day, uh, we get good weight loss, 6% in, in, in patients without diabetes. Um, there was another medication approved in that time period called lurcaserin. Um, I'm using the generic names here, 
which is also off the market now because in a, in a large trial, there was some asymmetry. Uh, the patients randomized to lorcastrin had an uh, increased in a number of different cancers. Again, low event rates, but increased, but they also had decreased in, in other cancers. So any rate, the FDA requested that the company take this off the market and they, they complied with that. So we don't have lorcastrin anymore. Now, this brings us to 2021, and you mentioned uh, semaglutide. Again, a medication that was first approved for diabetes at a lower dose, one milligram uh, a week, uh, once a weekly injection, uh, but at a dose of 2.4 milligrams a week, gets very impressive weight loss. Uh, you can get, uh, you know, predictably uh, with a lifestyle intervention, 15% weight loss on average uh, with semaglutide 2.4 milligrams. So to me, this brings us, uh, this is transformative. I mean, uh, we can double the weight loss with this new medication into a range that we know is effective in treating or preventive, preventing a wide range of obesity complications. The other medicines, some patients might get there, but it wasn't as predictable. Now we can do that pretty reliably, and which is why I've, I've advocated for this term second-generation medications um, now for obesity. And this semaglutide 2.4 milligrams won't be the last. Uh, we've seen data with this uh, uh, GLP-1 GIP dual agonist uh, called tazerpatide by uh, and that was uh, uh, just approved this earlier this year for diabetes. Uh, but we've seen do uh, data presented at the American Diabetes Association meetings in June of this year tremendous effectiveness in patients without diabetes, up to 20% weight loss. So we're really closing the gap now with bariatric surgery. Um, this is not yet approved for non-diabetes, uh, patients without diabetes and obesity, uh, but uh, I'm sure it will be presented to the FDA uh, later this year, is my understanding. So that's not that far off. And there's other exciting medicines in development. I, I could mention a few of them if you wanted to, but we're going to have the future holds promise because we're going to have more of these medications with second generation efficacy that I think will transform uh, obesity medicine. And we're also conducting cardiovascular outcome trials in uh, uh, with some of these medicines, including semaglutide 2.4 in patients without diabetes. And this is the SELECT trial. There's 17,500 patients internationally on the study. If this shows that that degree of weight loss is also cardioprotective, I tell you, it's going to be hard for clinicians and healthcare uh, systems and payers and uh, insurers and healthcare system CEOs, et cetera, to ignore this medicine. Uh, I think it'll be, I hope, I think it'll be patient driven uh, if this, if it's cardioprotective as well as, you know, helping you lose, you know, 15, 20% of your body weight. It's pretty incredible. The uh, uh, the results of the torsepatide you know study was just I guess published in a New England Journal just this uh, July. You yeah. know they were talking about um, in average producing weight loss of twelve percent, but you know with the ten milligram tablet uh, you getting getting weight loss of nineteen percent uh, with fifteen milligram tablet twenty percent you know weight loss, and, and it looks like about fifty percent of participants in the ten to fifteen um, you know milligram group at reduction of weight loss of 20% or more. I mean, to me, what's interesting, it's, and also the paradigm shift is that now you're getting 
a percentage of weight loss that you can measure in the treatment of your obesity, the same way that uh, that you can measure a marker for your diabetes and measuring a hemoglobin A1C, the, the same way that you can measure LDL and treatment of hyperlipidemia or, or blood pressure, you know, for treatment of hypertension. I mean, this is really uh, incredible, um, you know, in, in medical treatment. Yeah, I think it's uh, all the things you've mentioned are consistent with what I've termed a complication-centric approach to treating the disease. We're treating the disease not just to get X amount of pounds off. We're treating the disease to get sufficient weight loss to reverse or prevent these complications. Because again, these complications are what impair health and decrease longevity. Um, as opposed to a, a weight-centric approach, which your only goal is to lose you know, X amount of weight, um, we're, we really uh, now can treat this disease as a, as a chronic disease, like we do hypertension and diabetes. And let me just digress a little bit there. You know, we, when we treat diabetes and hypertension and, and cardiovascular disease, we treat a target. We treat hemoglobin A1C to target in diabetes. We treat millimeters of mercury to target in hypertension. We treat LDL cholesterol to target in, in, in cardiovascular disease prevention, not because we really care about those measures. What we care about is we know if we control those biomarkers, if you will, within a, 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 a definitive range, we can prevent these complications or treat these complications. Now we can look at obesity that way. We can, we can engineer a, a degree of weight loss using these second generation medicines within a range uh, where we know we can prevent and treat complications based on many uh, clinical trials. Uh, so um, that's why I say the future is bright here. Yeah. Now, when I try to prescribe those medication, uh, obviously they're expensive um, and I always get turned on by the insurance. Uh, so uh, is there, you know, like um, for bariatric, you know, surgery treatment, there are certain guidelines, you know, who's the best candidate for that. Do we have that for the second generation um, um, anti-obesity medication? I mean, who who is the best candidate for that type of treatment? Um, yeah, we don't have those kind of indications. And I think, you know, that will evolve over time because, um Many of these trials from these pharmaceutical companies are not just looking at weight loss and kind of effects on blood pressure and glucose, but they are conducting trials specifically in patients with osteoarthritis, patients with obstructive sleep apnea, uh, patients with diabetes. Uh, I, I, I think uh, weight. I would. I, I think weight loss should be a primary therapeutic modality in type two diabetes, not only for accompanying obesity, but for glycemic control per se. Um, so uh, that will evolve, but we, we just don't have that kind of differentiation. So, you know, it's patients with a BMI over a certain level or, or meet FDA indications for these medicines. And it's this disease is so common. Uh, that's why we created a, a risk stratification, cardiometabolic disease staging. So healthcare systems could get some confidence that these medications were being used rationally, being used to treat the sickest patients at highest risk. Um, but, you know, I, I think we've got a lot of work to do there, Alan. And, and this is one reason why these medications aren't uh, so easily accessible. Um, you know, they are expensive, as particularly the new ones. Um, about 30 to 40 percent of patients in the United States do have some health care coverage for them, but perhaps at a high tier of, 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 of uh, pharmaceutical coverage payment. Um, 
you know, I think we just have to advocate for higher access to these medications because we're, we're leaving a lot. We're, we're treating the complications of the disease now. Uh, why not treat the disease primarily and prevent the complications? And, you know, that kind of health economic analyses are being done also. So we're kind of on the threshold, uh, Alan, with these second generation medicines. We've got a lot to learn. We've got a lot to learn about how to use them rationally for a chronic disease that is so prevalent. So, Tim, uh, you know, we we uh, we hear people saying that that um, obesity is more like a lifestyle choice, but it's actually really a disease. What are the the, the bias that we encounter in in, um, in obesity and its treatment? Yes, Alan, I think bias is is so pervasive, and I think one of the key factors that prevents more uh, beneficial uh, therapy and, and the way we treat these patients. Um, and it's operative on multiple levels. First, it's operative at the level of the patient. You know, uh, patients internalize their disease. They, they think it's their fault. Uh, they hear social media. They hear public discourse. Uh, they encounter the healthcare system and not treated empathetically, kind of fat shamed uh, in all of these venues. And so they, they think it's up to them to seek to, to deal with this and not seek care for it. And really, for optimal outcomes, you need an empowered and prepared patient. Uh, you need a patient that understands this disease, that can speak up for themselves, um, and this bias works against that. The other thing you need uh, in, with a chronic disease model is a prepared healthcare system uh, to uh, engage this empowered patient. By a prepared healthcare system, uh, a healthcare system that knows how to treat the disease, that has the tools available and ready to bring them to the table. You know, we all haven't learned a lot about obesity in our training uh, up till now. Um, I certainly didn't in uh, medical school as an internal medicine house officer, even as an endocrine fellow. And I'd venture to say this is uh, true of, of, of all of our training uh, and not just physicians, but PAs, NPs, pharmacists, uh, other healthcare professionals. So there's, there's a bias there, just like there's in the general public, that obesity is not a real disease and is a lifestyle choice. And, and the healthcare system's not prepared. So bias operates at that level. And finally, to support a prepared healthcare system and empowered patient in care, you need support from society at large. Society has to kind of support these processes. And again, a bias is at work there. Uh, at the level of large employers and and, and CMS and uh, healthcare systems and insurers that don't really understand the impact of obesity uh, and the and and the and the fact that obesity is a disease, so so bias hurts us there too. So it's operative at all of these letter levels, and I think really preventing progress uh, in obesity medicine uh, and our ability to care for these patients. A uh, very good point. Well. Um... Tim, thank you very much. I mean, that was very, very helpful. Uh, it has really kind of awakened the community uh, in what's possible to do now with um, obesity and, and um, you know, where we're headed, you know, from here. I think we're going to have more and more cardiovascular data, uh, even as supporting the use of these medication uh, and uh, in trying to improve outcome in a patient uh, that have this problem, this disease of obesity. Um, Tim Garvey at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Thank you very much uh, for all this great information. Thank you, Ellen. It's really been a pleasure. I hope this is helpful to your, to your audience. And I'm always ready to kind of advocate for patients with this disease. And hopefully we'll 
will be uh, bringing better therapies and, and improving their health in a more comprehensive way. So thank you so much for inviting me. Amen to that. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode. 